In 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27, God speaks to us in his word. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make, us, make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? And as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Let me clear the air before I jump in. If you came to church today to um, hear a sermon that matches up with your political beliefs, you're in the wrong place. If you came to church today to, um, to be in a place that fits all of your consumer ideas about what you think the church ought to be and you're looking for me to say all the things that you agree with and you're in the wrong place, man. I'm not saying this to be coy, or, but I have, I have a responsibility before God to preach this book. And I have a responsibility before God to preach all, even the hard things in this book and to give you guys what's in this book, which is the very word of truth. And so today, I just wanted to start by saying, like, I'm going to do my best to preach this Bible. I need you to do your best to absorb it and walk towards Jesus with your life. Not everybody's a Christian in the room. And, I, man, I'm super honored that you're here. If you're not a Christian, I want to talk with you about Jesus. If you're a Christian, this is not the place for you to come and get all of your needs met. This is the place for you to come and hear about the one who can meet your needs. And we're going to preach Jesus today. We're going to talk about the church today. We're going to talk about what it means to be a part of the church and what it means for you to lay your life down and be less self-absorbed and more, um, less selfish and more ready to give yourself away to the kingdom of God on earth. That, for me, is worth fighting for. That, for me, is worth laying down my life for. I don't want to be a part of something that just is tickling, itching ears. We've been preaching through the book of Mark, which is an incredible book, and we're going to keep preaching through the gospel of Mark, 
But today, given the reality of membership and our needs to renew membership in the church, we're going to take a little bit of a detour from Mark, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 12, which is what she just read. And honestly, she could have just read that, and the sermon is done. I mean, it's, I love how pragmatic Paul is. I love how kind of sarcastic he is at times. It just, I'm like, Paul, man, we could hang out probably if you're sarcastic. I love it. I love 1 Corinthians 12. There's so much about this book and this letter that we need to jump into. And as we approach membership renewal, I know not everybody's a member in this room, but as we approach membership renewal, it's just good for us to preach on probably my favorite topic, which is the church. The church is amazing. There's nothing like it. It's like beautiful and wonderful and a total hot mess at times. The church is amazing, man. It's the plan. It's like there's not another plan. It's, um, just think about God. Think about God's all-powerful, and at the same time, he's all-knowing, and he's also the most gracious, and God is love. God's like everything wrapped into one. That all-powerful, not just enough power, but all-powerful God, sovereign, that God, who's also all-loving, made one plan, just one, to bring his kingdom on earth. There's no other plan. There will never be another plan. And he's so confident in it that he guarantees 100% success. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church. The church is not plan B. There's not some other plan like the church didn't work out, so we better go to some, some nonprofits to get this done. That's not it. The church is not some like, there's not something happening in the church where God's like just biting his nails and freaking out. Are they going to get it right? God's not nervous about pandemics or... <laughs> He's not nervous about that. He is fully confident, 1,000% confident that his plan will work. That's the church. It's my favorite thing to preach on. I, I should, probably shouldn't have said that because now if the sermon's not any good, you're going to hold me to it. I love it. I think it's wonderful. The problem is it's wonderful and it's God Almighty and it's his plan and Jesus is the head of the body, but it's also not perfect. It's a paradox. It's contradictory at times. It's like, well, there's times when it's good, times when it's not good. I mean, the Crusades is not a time that the church should celebrate. But persecution under Rome, under Diocletian, when all the saints met for the Council of Nicaea and Constantine got saved or whatever, that time, that's like, man, that sounds like the church, what we want the church to be. When the church lays down its life and builds hospitals and still the church is still the dominant um, sacrificer for local nonprofits in the world. Those are beautiful things. But she's a paradox, man. She's also full of crazy people. <laughs> that do crazy things and have crazy ideals. And just when you think she might look a little bit more like the Garden of Eden, it's like, well, 
I forgot there's thorns and thistles. This is broken. That's the church. We're going to talk about the church today, and I'm going to ask you to perk up, man, and pay attention, and don't give up on the church. Be in it. Listen today. Let it form your heart. There are several metaphors the Bible uses to describe the church. Here's some. The wisdom of God. Amazing. One of my favorite passages, Ephesians 3.10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, the manifold wisdom, the manifold wisdom, not some of his wisdom, but this is the plan. His manifold wisdom will be made known to earth and in heavenly places through the church. This is God opening his mouth and preaching the sermon of, look at me, I am wise, through the church. But also, the paradox is, she's so fragile. The church is so weak. And the church doesn't sound like the wisdom of God sometimes. The church actually sounds like the enemy sometimes. What about the body of Christ? This is amazing. The body of Christ, Jesus' hands and feet in the world, marching onward through all kinds of pain and suffering and persecution, still marching. His hands, his arms, his muscles, the church serving the poor. Yet at the same time, the church can be filled with a lot of self-absorbed, money-hungry, greedy people. The church can be used as a political platform, and it is a lot. These are people that worship comfort. What about the bride of Christ? Not you, men, listen, men cringe at this, I get it. Not you individually. You are not individually the bride of Christ, but the church itself is described as the bride of God. It's Christ's bride. There's pride in that. That means that we're loved, we're adored, we're pursued. He's a better groom anyway. He's different. He's not like all of us. He pursues us, and he's patient with us, and he lets us be crazy and We're in covenant relationship with him that can never be broken. That's The church is that, the bride of Christ. And at the same time, she's an adulteress. Constantly runs away from him. Constantly goes towards other idols. She's cold. Distracted. He loves her. She doesn't always love him. The temple of God. Filled with the presence of God. And the majesty, imagine the temple, is so intricate, all the details that point to the glory and the magnificence of God on earth, the temple. Priests in the temple. But the church is not fully holy a lot. She often lacks power, often lacks peace. The church is an anxious place and often is a lot of things um, and not priestly. It's the paradox of the church, so how do we respond? Well, we've got a few ways that you naturally respond, and I do too. The first thing is we become cynical and we withdraw. Our cynicism towards the church, we get mad at how things are, we wish they could be a different way, and we become cynical and we start to point fingers and we start to say, see there, I told you that place is not Eden. See there, I told you that place is not perfect. I told you that's not the perfect kingdom of God. We become cynical. We withdraw because it'll never match whatever our ideal is about it. 
And so instead of us staying in it, we become armchair quarterbacks that have all of these opinions about how something should be without ever actually putting in the work to stay in it to make sure it becomes that. I'm not a fan of armchair quarterbacks. I'm not saying that I haven't been one. I have. How about we do this, just in general? How about we speak less, have less opinions, and do more work? The church needs that. Let's put in the work. Let's build a relationship with each other. Let's build trust with each other. Let's not be cynical in our withdrawing. We also become idealists, and our idealism paralyzes us. We want the church to be perfect. We have an idea of how it should be and how people should be. And when they don't match that, man, when our leaders aren't Jesus to us, we tend to throw them under the bus. It's not a leader's job to be Jesus to you. Trust and believe. I am a leader in this church, and if you put your trust in me, you are done. Ain't no question about it. I don't know how long it's going to take, but it ain't going to be long for me to let you down. My job is to point you to the one that you can trust, which is Jesus. That's every leader in this church's job, is to not be your all everything. We're not, we cannot be there for you for everything. Um, Pastor Matt, Pastor Pat, Pastor Jerry, like elders of the church, me, deacons, you name it. We cannot fulfill all of your needs according to our riches and glory. We don't have riches and we don't have glory. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all of these things will be added to you. My job is to point you to Jesus. That's what the church is. But we become idealistic, and when I don't meet your needs or other people don't as well, then we throw in the towel and we withdraw into cynicism or we're just paralyzed by our idealism. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was uh, a man that loved Jesus, and, um, and he was around, he was German in the time that the Third Reich rose up with Hitler. And he opposed Hitler and lost his life for it. Great man of God, wrote a book called Life Together. He said, every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves the dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. It does us no good for you to have opinions and not do the work. The other thing is we become consumers and we bounce around. We keep on constant search for this ideal. We want the church to meet all of these things, to do it exactly the way that we want, and to not ever be able to be told no. We never settle into a people and we never let that people form us. We just become arrogant. We think we should form them. And really, we should be formed by them. We always look, and for the wrong reasons, to a church that looks like the new heavens and new earth. And we're not there yet. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. It's a weird name for a book, but it's a cool book. The Screwtape Letters is about the enemy of God's people, Satan, his uh, demons. Like They're writing letters. They're building strategies back and forth how to um, combat Christianity and how to combat Christians. And so you see this insight into all of this like Lewis's take on what they might say. 
And here's one of the moments where the enemies of God were trying to overthrow the people of God. And it says this, Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy, referring to God, wants him to be a pupil. We are called in this room to be pupils. So, in our idealism, we withdraw and we become paralyzed and eventually we just bounce around looking for the ideal church that doesn't exist. 1 Corinthians 12 is important because it combats this and the reason it's so significant is primarily because of who wrote it. First off, the Holy Spirit wrote the whole Bible. He used men to do it, men to put pen to paper, but their stories are important because the man that wrote 1 Corinthians 12, that told us how we should live in the church, the man that wrote Ephesians 3 that so passionately talks about the church and describes it in this way like the church is amazing, it's the wisdom of God, that man is a man called Paul. And the reason I want you to know about him is because he wasn't always this man. He actually started with another name. His name was Saul. Saul was one of the most intense persecutors of the church in the history of the world. Saul's one main goal in life was to eradicate Christianity and the church off the planet. What happened to Saul on his way to persecute the church was Jesus saved him. He didn't decide to do that. He wasn't just riding along thinking about, man, maybe I'm wrong about this church deal. No, sir. He was the chief of sinners, he said. I, I had zeal like you would not believe on his way to persecute the church. Imagine that. You talk about enemy of God. Jesus comes in, interrupts him, puts his glory on him, puts his salvation and his love on him, Saul becomes a new man, not because of his own works, but because of God. Saul becomes Paul. Paul goes from being a persecutor of a church to a church planter and to the guy who writes, the wisdom of God is revealed through the church. That's amazing. First off, there's a whole other sermon to talk about just the reality in which God saves us. But also, here's what I'm trying to get at is, you cannot say that you don't love the church and that you love Jesus. If Jesus has changed your life, like he did Saul's, if you encounter Jesus, immediately what happens is a true encounter with Jesus and a continued encounter with Jesus means that you love the church more. The closer we get and the more that we walk with Jesus, the more love we should have for his church. The truth is, the closer we get and the more that we walk with Jesus, the more humble we should become. And the more that we should realize, yeah, the church is not perfect because I'm in it. And I'm actually not perfect, believe it or not. That's the posture of a humble heart, a person who's a member of the body. There was an old catchphrase that went around, kind of a marketing ploy years ago for different churches that I would see. It became popular, at least in the Midwest. And I get the premise behind it. it I, I, well, 
I get the premise behind it. I don't agree with the form. Um, the catchphrase was this. A church would put on a billboard. Love God but hate the church. So do we. Come to our church. <laughs> that was the marketing ploy. And I remember reading that years ago, man, like 15, 20 years ago. And I was like, oh, that's a good catchphrase. I bet people will come because of that. And I get it, man. I know some of the leaders in that church, and, and they're good men, love Jesus, and they'll probably never do that kind of campaign ever again. But the premise of it is so backwards. Paul is proof here. You cannot love Jesus and not love his church. You cannot love Jesus and not at least fight to love his church. Saul hated the church and persecuted her. As soon as Jesus saved him, he became the biggest supporter of the church of all time outside of Jesus. So we're going to look at what Paul says. This is how that we should be in the church. We're going to pay attention. I've got a few things. I'm going to move through these quickly because this is what it means to be members of the church body. We take it serious, and you should too. First is this, number one. Membership is unity. It is unity. 12.12 says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Again, membership is unity. Being saved by Jesus unifies us to him, no doubt about it. We are forever tethered to Jesus. We are forever unified with him and will forever be through eternity. But we're also unified and tethered to each other. Being saved from our sins means that we're saved into Jesus' body. So we fight for unity. We fight to maintain it. You are members of one body. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. There's no such thing as Christian isolation. There's no such thing as continuing to be Christian for any amount of time without the body. Jesus is the head of the body, and he designed it this way. I don't know how long it would take. I don't know how long it would last, but at some point, the more you isolate, I'm telling you as a pastor in this church, I have seen this this year. COVID isolated a lot of people. And because of isolation, people that love Jesus have walked with us for a while, slowly begin to just accept other things, other doctrines, and just walk away from the church. It is inevitable because of the way God designed it. Without the church, you cannot properly follow Jesus. You can't. You will continue to become more immature. The church is what you need to be mature. Membership means unity. God designed you to know him, learn him, repent to him, and serve him by being in his body. Anything else is spiritual death. What this means is we fight for one another. We hold one another up. It means that we keep short accounts. It means that we outdo one another in showing honor. These are all things the Bible commands us to do. It means that we, according to Romans, we, so long as it depends on you, live peaceably 
with all. It means that according to Galatians, we don't grow weary of doing good, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Unity is something the Bible tells us that we have to fight to maintain, not create. Jesus creates unity in us uh, by the Holy Spirit when we're saved. Have you ever, when you have gotten to know or encountered someone who has just given their life to Jesus, have you ever noticed that those people don't have any opinions on whether or not the other Christians around them are cool enough? You ever notice that? Especially in other parts of the world. Somebody gets saved and they hear about other Christians and it's like, where? Tell me where to go to be around these other people that believe this crazy thing that I believe. They're happy, man. They've got so much patience for people that we don't have patience for. Other Christians get, new Christians get around other people that we would be like, ah, that guy's a little annoying. It's like, I don't care, he loves Jesus. I love that, man. I want that in me. Unity is something that is given to us when we're saved. It's over time that we become so mundane and Christianity is trite and we start to lose our wonder and our awe and our zeal and passion for the heart of God. We start to pick each other apart because you're not Jesus to me and you don't meet my needs and I don't like you because of that. We need to fight to maintain unity. Unity is given by Jesus when we're saved and cynicism, sin, and Satan takes our unity and tries to destroy it. So membership is unity. Let's fight to maintain it. Membership is also diversity. 12, 14, for the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, well, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, well, that would not make it any less a part of the body. I love Paul's like pragmatism with a little bit of sarcasm. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Body requires different functions, different gifts, and different parts to operate. We, as the body, the church, we all have different things to offer. You have different gifts than I have. I have different gifts than you have. We're called to roles within the church just simply to use our gifts and to keep saying yes to Jesus when he wants to stretch us into our calling. It's easy, again, to be an armchair quarterback. It's easy to have an opinion about really anything in the whole world, especially when you're not ready to do the work to make it better. Let's not be that. Let's use our gifts. Let's fight for each other. Let's be in it. Literally everyone should participate in caring for one another and doing the work of ministry. It's diversity, it's unity, and also membership is, it's a witness to the world. 1 Corinthians 12, 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. 
And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers... All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, having said all of that, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Individually, you're a member of the greater body. Membership is unifying, it's diverse. It's also witness to the world. The reason I say that is because what I just described to you sounds like a breath of fresh air. It's what Jesus talked about when he said the first will be last and the last will be first. This is that thing that feels like so much better than chasing our tails in the world, trying to get mine, trying to be my best self, and trying to step on everybody I've got to step on in order to get there. It sounds so much better than the constant competition we're faced with, where I hold you up, I help you out, you help me out, we bear one another's burdens. The whole world is consumed by self-actualization, meaning you do whatever you want, Be whoever you want. And that's great because that's what you want to be. It is exhausting. When do we stop? How many genders? How much sexuality? When does it stop? I feel crazy. I actually think that we're in a place in our world where it's like, The architects of those types of systems are starting to feel crazy as well because all that happens is you keep adding options and then you get to a place where you don't know what's real. Where do you draw the line? Who decides who gets to be human beings? Do I decide if you get to be a human? Is that how far we're going to go? Where does it stop? If you don't get to be human in my sight, then what keeps me from just ending your life because it doesn't matter? Or ending my own? What I'm saying is this. This autonomy of self, this self-actualization is exhausting, man. We need a parent We need a guardian to tell us what to do and how to live. Somebody that's smarter than us. And we need other people who also know about the parent or also children and also submit to the guardian so they can help us interpret what they say and also follow this book. We actually need God the Father and we need each other. You're not just saved from your sin. You're saved into a body That's accountable. We can't live however we want. 
We can't do whatever we want or be whoever we want to be. We are made in an image. We have accountability to keep us from choosing a wider road. How do we finish the race? Sometimes I'm like, man, I, I'm glad I'm a pastor, a leader, or whatever, but I just want to finish the race. How do we do that? You need each other. This is better than the whole crazy, anxious system of the world. This is true flourishing. The other is just insanity. <laughs> Put a toddler in a room full of candy. The toddler is for sure going to get sick. Now, that would be one epic moment. They would never forget that in their lives. It actually sounds kind of fun. But the toddler will for sure get sick. And if there's no parent to say, you can't have that, you need something healthy, then it's not healthy for the toddler at all. True flourishing is not experienced alone. In order to grow and have health, we desperately need each other. We actually have to have each other. The final thing is this, membership is commitment. It's commitment. Commitment is not something that we talk about a lot in the world. It's not something that we um, feel like we need anymore. We as human beings on earth have begun to worship king emotion. More than anything else, our feelings dictate how we live. When we start to believe the lie that life is simply and dominantly about our individual happiness and our self-actualization, we're left in a constant turnover rate. Marriages, if you're married in the room, your spouse cannot meet your needs according to their riches and glory. They don't have riches, they don't have glory, like we talked about. Your spouse actually is there to point you to Jesus. They're never gonna be perfect. They're never gonna be gracious in the right moment. As a teenager, I had this idea of marrying someone. I'm like, I can't wait to find the person that knows what I'm thinking before I know it. <laughs> can't wait to find, marry someone that like, when I'm sad, they know exactly how, what to say to make me happy. It's just crazy, man. There's only one person that knows you. You don't even know yourself. God, the Holy Spirit, does know you. He made you. He formed you. He knows every intricate detail. Your marriage is for you to know him. That's why you're married. If you have friends in the room and you're a Christian, your friends are actually pointing you to the friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's what your friendship is about, Jesus. Your job, you may hate your job. I mean, inevitably there are people in this room that actually hate their job. Your job is about Jesus as well. And when you understand that like, man, whatever I do in word or deed, whatever I do, I do it unto the Lord or work heartily as unto God. Then all of a sudden you go to work because I'm on a mission and I'm gonna be the hardest worker and I'm gonna produce the best stuff and I'm gonna be the easiest guy to work with and I'm gonna build a relationship with these people because this job is about Jesus. 
your calling, whatever it is that God has called you to, whatever you feel like God has called you to, is about Jesus. Call to ministry, call to whatever. It doesn't matter. All of that is about Jesus. It seems what we need right now are people who will fight for something bigger than themselves, fight for something bigger than their own needs. Being committed first and primarily to Jesus means you lay your own pride aside and work for the good of others. It means that your marriage, your friendships, your job, your calling, and your commitment to the church is ultimately about Jesus. I'm saying that to say, be here. Now, look, there are guests in the room that I'm not, I don't want you to feel pressure. You might not, this might not be the place for you. I, I, I don't know. But if you're a member here, if you're part of this body, man, be here. Be here. Don't be in an idealistic version of this place. Don't have idealism about this place. Just be here because this is where God has placed you and be fully here. Do the work. Jesus is the head of the body. Being committed to him means that you are linking arms with the church even though, and trust me, I know, she may drive you crazy sometimes. And even though the church will never be complete this side of heaven. Mark Sayers, great author, says this, in an age that encourages maximum autonomy and the transgressing of limitations, perhaps we need to see the institution of church as a spiritual discipline. We get the idea that making the choice to wake up early and read our Bibles or to commit to regularly giving away our money to a charity or to fast may not always be pleasurable, but in the discipline of these things that we become more Christ-like. Yet, when we expect church to be more pleasurable or to always be pleasurable, when we expect church to always be enriching and exciting, Maybe the limitations of church, the discipline of regular attendance, the commitment it requires also teaches us to be Christ-like. Maybe we need to reimagine church in our minds as a spiritual discipline which teaches us the value of delayed gratification, of personally investing in change, of becoming more like Jesus. The church is beautiful, and broken and powerful and weak. Now, nothing is going to shake the movement of the church. Nothing. Jesus is the head. We can be confident in that. But our job right now is to do both of those things, is to fight for its good and also have the confidence that Jesus is the head of the body and we can lay our head down and know, man, we're a part of something that's not perfect, but ha has a perfect master. Hey, listen, man, I, I love you all, and, but we're going to continue to fight for this place to be a place where we outdo one another, we're showing honor, a place where we love and support each other, a place where we seek the kingdom of God first, Let's stand together.